non-charismatic non-megafauna, I guess. Uh, and no, no, there's no non-charismatic group. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, this is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Tony Crosdale. The other co-host and guest host... Lisa Betancourt. Lisa Betancourt. And so um, we're really excited about this episode. This year, or this season, season's lasted almost a, almost a year. This year we, we focused a lot more on small stuff. On Ooh. insects, <laughs> arthropods. Um, and, and this episode we're focusing, really focusing on how rich and biodiverse cities can be when you shrink your scale down and focus on our smallest neighbors. In episode six, we talked about endangered tansy beetles of York, England. Um, we were joined by Daniel Duran, a Philadelphia entomologist. Um, we talked about his organization called Mantis, Mid-Atlantic Native and Threatened Insect Zoo. Um, in episode four, we talked about urban ecology um, with author Ken Frank and focused on bees in the city. Also listened in that episode to stuff about bugs and their role in archaeology. Uh, with Allison Bain from Quebec, and naturalist Andrew Hoffman took us on a spider tour of his house. Um, in this episode, we're going to hear about a couple other urban invertebrate biodiversity projects. In Los Angeles, we're going to hear about the Bioscan Project, uh, which focuses on backyard insect collection uh, to study biodiversity in our nation's second largest city, all tied in with a great public education and outreach project. And in Boston, the Boston Harbor Islands All Taxa Biodiversity Inventory. It's a mouthful. Um, which focuses, uh, in this case, on arthropod life in one of our nation's most important and oldest harbors. And so I'll introduce Issa Betancourt by starting off saying that she was on her second episode ever. Woohoo! Um, talking <laughs> about her swan fountain study, uh, which she used a monumental old fountain in the heart of Center City to sample insect biodiversity of our great city. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have Issa right here to talk with us about how we bring bugs to the people. Yeah. Um, Issa, so how'd you get into entomology? What got you started on bugs? Um, what a big question. <laughs> okay. I'll start uh, with an easier question really quick. Okay. Do you always wear dragonfly earrings or just to like... Since Christmas. Appearance? Okay, there you go. It was given to me by, by my little brothers. All right, that makes <laughs> but, sense. Um, but I do like to wear a lot of insect jewelry to rep- represent. Yeah. Um, I have always been interested in insects since I was little. One of those people. <laughs> a lot of entomologists joke that we... Never get rid of our child enthusiasm for insects, and that could be true for me. Uh, when I was little, I wanted to be either an entomologist or an astronaut. I really liked the idea of discovery and the unknown, the great unknown. Tony's got a big nature and space theme. Oh, yeah? Yes. yes. Maybe we can have you back for that. Sure. <laughs> I just really want an excuse to have someone with a thermon every time uh, <laughs> I just like you bring, a, you bring a thermon we'll get it on the show yeah um, and I think that and this reminds me slightly that like we did an episode earlier also I forgot to mention it about uh, insects and in, in, we mentioned in, in Antarctica mm-hmm. in Antarctic research stations so I think if we ever have like big space, space stations and stuff there will be insects there somehow well my, my, my theory is um, I'd like to get someone to talk about what life is on space stations right there has to yeah. be something right they have to deal with it there has to be some kind of pest management mm-hmm. right yeah. it has to be a thing or yeah, I guess so. you know I, they have to have gotten up there somehow yeah i like to know um about that if that's a thing and also while some wildlife navigate by stars 
So it's wildlife interacting with the cosmos. Yeah. I'd like to talk about that. And also, um, you know, it's interesting. Also, also dung beetles, perhaps, too. Navigate by us. By stars. There you go. Exactly. We need to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, um, when you look at stars, some of those have got to have life on them. Right? So, like, it's like you're looking at plants. You look at, sorry, planets that could have life on it from from earth, from a city. So it might be cool to talk about like in, in spaces, nature is part of nature. Somebody kind of interesting to talk about what space you can observe from a city because there's definitely some challenges. And Tony, in the last, an episode we just posted uh, of you talking with um, uh, Craig from Shanghai Birding, you talked about you're trying to claim a bird that you spotted across the Delaware River as a Philadelphia yeah, bird instead of a New Jersey bird because you can see it from Philadelphia. <laughs> By that argument, <laughs> oh, yeah, I see where you're going. Planets. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I mean, yeah. The, the idea the re- behind that is when I report birds, my goals is someone to is much for someone to know where the bird's at. You can find it, but also it's more like if you want to replicate what I'm doing, right, and and have my and, and go to find a bird, the birds that I saw in Jersey, like. It's easier to go to this park in Philadelphia and look across the river than it is to go yeah, to that place from, yeah. from Jersey. It's yeah. a, you know, mm-hmm. so that's that's my that's mm-hmm. fair. So like, so you yeah. got so you were a kid who loves bugs and um, yeah, you didn't and become space. an astronaut. I didn't. Um, I you could, I think that I went more, more of the bug route because they're tangible and there's so much to discover right here on our planet that has yet to be discovered. There are one million described species of insects and so many more predicted to exist out there and so much we can learn from them, from their hundreds of millions, literally, years of evolution and adaptation to our planet here on Earth. And what's your day job? I am a curatorial assistant at the Academy of Natural Sciences. So for those who don't work in museums, what does that mean? That means, I like to describe it as I'm an insect librarian. I help take care of the specimens and I'm working on two projects right now. One... Um, that is a, a collaboration with about 27 institutions across North America to digitize, to gather all the information from our Lepidoptera moths and butterfly specimens from North America and get them online, both the locality and date information and then also the images of them. So you're scanning them? Yeah. We're taking pictures, I guess? Yeah. Pictures and also just transcribing the labels. Oh, so. Okay. Um, and then also I'm helping our curator emeritus, Dan Audi, with photographing some Peruvian crickets so that he can work on work through them to see which ones are new species. Okay. So. You know, you hear a lot about people going through old collections and finding things and saying, wait a second, um, either this is a new species or this is something that we just really had no idea was there or, or mm-hmm. do you ever, have you, or if not you, have you, do you know of such discoveries at the Academy Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, Drexel University, um, that uh, that have like you know someone found something in a in a drawer, you know. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I do not. I do not. Well, in a weird in a weird way, I was involved with the discovery of a new species of invertebrate while I was in the Academy of Natural Sciences. Oh tell? yeah. I was showing Ned Gilmore. Mm-hmm. I know that. Yeah. That's a vertebrate collections guy who's uh, also known in the herping circles in Philadelphia. I was showing him my photos from Peru, and I showed him a picture 
I've mostly I've shown him poison dart frogs, mm-hmm. but I showed him a picture of a slug. And he was like, that is really cool looking. Um, there's someone here, I forgot the name, um, a malcologist for the USDA, and they, they keep their office at the academy so they can have access to the collection, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, he'd love to see this. And I sent it to him. I forget the guy's name. Raised me back. And he's like, that's very likely a new species. Can you collect one for me? And I was like, oh. I have no intention of going to northern Peru. <laughs> I didn't have soon. So what he did was he took my picture and wrote museums who had gone collecting mm. and and had things on their shelves that haven't described yet. And he said, has anybody collected in northern Peru and seen anything like this? And then uh, someone from Florida was like, yeah, we did, and we have that in a jar, and it hadn't been described yet. And so they used my photo from life in that in that uh, specimen to describe it, and they got a Brazilian postdoc who was there to do it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So are you still doing the Swan Fountain thing? Or do you... I'm planning on picking it up again this summer since I'm there. Okay. And so the last time I collected there was in 2014, so this right. is three years later. Yeah. And there's been a lot of construction in Center City, Philadelphia. So I think true. that might be interesting. Um, definitely note I have to note that for sure in my notes. Yeah. Um, so I do plan on collecting in the fountain again this summer and also working on the samples. Cool. Um, and talk a little bit, uh, I noticed on Facebook, um, mm-hmm. you did uh, at least one live, I'm not even sure what the way social media referred to it. It's not Periscope. What was it? Periscope. It was Periscope? Periscope. Okay, that, you have a live was... Periscope. Yeah. In the academy stack. I almost went on the stacks because I think it was like <laughs> in the collections. Yeah, in the collections. So talk about that a little bit. Um, that's right. Um, I really enjoy doing science communication, and I've been trying to do make make the collections and the specimens more accessible and the stories that they hold more accessible to people, to whoever, whoever's interested. So I started dabbling with Periscope as a venue for, for science communication. Yeah. Um, yeah, I chose Periscope actually because it was pretty anonymous. <laughs> I was like, I don't want anybody I know to, to because I wanted to test it out. Like I wanted All to right. just like test it out, see what the responses of random people. Was that the first one you did? No. Okay. I did like four before that. Oh crap! I just that's the first one I advertised. That's why I didn't know about the other ones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nobody how, did. How, <laughs> well, how'd that go? The secret Periscopes. Oh, it's going well. <laughs> I did one today actually. How neat. And okay. um, I'll keep. I'll do one next week when I'm in Costa Rica. What was this one about today? Today was about luna moths. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so why is it? <laughs> so why is any stuff that you do for a living important? Like, why do we? What, what's What's the use of connecting people to the? And I don't, don't use this as a pejorative term, mm-hmm. but it's easier than saying like arthropods and etc. And this is. But how, what, why is Why is it important to connect people to their bugs? Oh, I like, like the word bug. Okay, it's I nice, know. casual, fun to throw around. Good, all right. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Don't get no, mad though. You're not. not no. Not just the not. true bugs, but you know, <laughs> but yeah. No, I like the word bugs. Okay. Um, I like bugs, and I think they're important because they're just the little gears that keep our world working, and they help keep the environment that sustain us, sustains us healthy. And it's important that people recognize that. Okay. Because a lot of people forget that part of insects. They don't see the behind the scenes that are out in the forest or out in the soil, um, decomposing things, helping keeping the natural processes going. They see just what's inside their kitchen, eating their food, uh, flying around the dog poo. And so it's important <laughs> to remind people that there are all Sucking these other the great things. Sucking the life out of the roses. Yeah. <laughs> or even bed bugs, for or that matter. Yeah. yeah. That one's a horror story yeah. for many people. 
bring some bad memories. But uh, yeah, it's good to remind people that there are a lot of great things going on with bugs, and that's why I like to talk about them, work on them, be an ambassador for them. We're going to start off listening to um, an interview with Brian Brown about the Bioscan project, and we'll talk a little bit more after we listen to it. I'm Brian Brown. I'm curator of entomology at the Natural History Museum. Bioscan is an urban insect survey, and it basically got started because of a bet. Because I'm always bragging, perhaps unwisely, that I can find new species anywhere. And one day, one of our trustees said, okay, well, I'll find them in my backyard, and we'll do a program based on it. So I thought, oh, God, no, now I've got to actually do this thing. So about three months early, we set up a trap in her backyard. And what we use are what we call malaise traps. They're sort of tent-like structures with a bottle at the top. And ah, uh, so we started about three months early, and I got the first sample and poured it out. Make a long story short, the first thing I pulled out was a new species in the group I work on. And then I pulled out another fly that was previously only known from Europe. And then I pulled out another fly that was previously only known from both coasts of Africa. And I said, wow, I've got enough to do my project, my uh, program in the evening. And you and won I the bet. At, and I won the bet, and I only looked at three flies. So who knows what else was in that sample. And basically, that's the uh, genesis of the Bioscan story is to figure out what else is around in Los Angeles, especially in small insects that nobody's really looking at. The flies that I work on are called forid flies. It's P-H-O-R-I-D. And um, one of the common names for them is ant decapitating flies because some of them lay their eggs inside the heads of ants and kill them in a very gruesome way. But anything that's small like this, like in the one to three millimeter range, is a frontier in entomology. Like big insects, they've been known for hundreds of years, basically. But the small things, we're still discovering all kinds of new species, new distributions, just new knowledge in general. Do you think the the flies that you're discovering, um, or are you able to tell whether these are previously undiscovered native fly species or the introduced species that were previously undiscovered somewhere else? Well, with the forids, it's pretty tough to tell that kind of thing because they're poorly known everywhere. But we have some information on some other groups, like, for instance, uh, Drosophila, the fruit fly family. Uh, we found a couple of species here in Los Angeles to be quite common that were previously only known from Central America and Australia. So there's a lot of introduced species here in Los Angeles. They're coming in all the time. And unless they have some kind of economic impact, most people don't notice them at all. When I say most people, I mean most entomologists. Yeah. Um, and I would wager to say since most people don't notice small flies that much, it's a safe statement at any scale. Um, right. And who cares about small flies, you may say, but... Small flies are good indicators of all kinds of things that are going on. In order to do an insect survey, you have to use the land that's available. And to a large extent, uh, what's available here in Los Angeles is private property, people's backyards. So what we did, which was one of the more innovative parts of our project, I think, was went out and found um, homeowners who were willing to host these traps. We call them site hosts. And they turned out to be one of the biggest assets we have in the project because they're just fanatical about their traps. 
and such strong advocates for what we're doing and such strong supporters. It's been a really eye-opening experience for me seeing how attached people can get to the, the traps and to their species and to what they find in the backyard, to what we find in the backyard, which to a large extent they'll never even see. Hey, clarify that last part. What do you mean by they'll never even see? Because um, a lot of the insects that we catch in our traps are one to three or four millimeters long. I mean, these traps catch thousands of insects every week, and we have to uh, sort through them to find the species that we're interested in. And that's another kind of public engagement part of the project, too, in that we have uh, work-study students and volunteers doing the, the uh, trap sample sorting. Okay. And they do, and, and they do that within an exhibit in the museum. We have a, a table we call the demonstration table, and we have a microscope under which they're sorting, and what they see is projected on a screen behind them. How so neat! People can see the discoveries actually being made in real time. Right, BioScan is now being combined with our other citizen science-oriented uh, survey projects. We have, uh, what, because of the success of the projects, we've had uh, a discovery that we need to have a different organization, which we're calling the Urban Nature Research Center here at the museum. And so we're going to be um, combining data from reptiles and amphibians and snails and slugs and squirrels and spiders and any other groups that we find uh, strong collaborators with the insect data. And the ultimate goal is to understand how urbanization affects the, the fauna of Los Angeles and ultimately how we can affect the, pro the planning process to make the city even more biodiversity friendly than it is already. We've talked a little bit about the, the, the forehead flies. Um, what other kinds of things are, uh, are are people discovering that you had not expected or just did not know were there um, in Los Angeles? As I mentioned, the Drosophila or Drosophila uh, fruit flies were a real surprise. The second commonest fruit fly here in Los Angeles is something that was previously known only from a half a dozen specimens from Central America. And 10 years ago, there was another fruit fly uh, survey, and that species didn't show up at all. So you can see that things are changing rapidly here and constantly changing. Um, we found a species of robber fly, which was fairly good-sized uh, fly. It's about 5 millimeters long. You know, as far as flies go, that's big. And it was uh, previously not known from the West Coast at all. It was known from from Florida and places south of, you know, like Mexico and Central America and so on. So we're finding all kinds of new things. We're more limited actually by expertise of people who are willing to look at the material than we are new things to find. We're, I mean, we're having to find people who are willing and able to identify the material that we send them. And it's almost, it's almost always the case that they find new and exciting things in there much to their surprise. Another thing that we're trying to do is really push the boundaries of what we mean by urban surveys. We're collecting downtown. We had some of our traps at the city hall here downtown. And we even have a trap up at the top of the tallest skyscraper in Los Angeles, the U.S. Bank building. So I have to ask, are you finding anything on top of the, the skyscraper? We are at 70 
four stories, 75 stories up there. We're getting insects. Very neat. Um, yeah. So last question. So if someone uh, is listening to this from Southern California or Los Angeles and hasn't heard of this yet, how should they get involved? somebody wants to get involved with the uh, Urban Nature Research Center, they should go to our website at www.nhm.org, and they can find information there. Ow! Citizen science! I also talked to, and didn't, uh, I'm not going to put the recording, but I talked to one of their volunteers, Joe Hogue, and he has um, a house in Los Angeles, a neighboring lot, and he's just a you know, regular museum member for years and got involved, got his own malaise trap. Um, I guess really enthusiastic about changing the bottle once a week and seeing what's in there, what kind of flies, what kind of moths, what kind of butterflies, etc. Um, seeing and sort of is, is even just as a volunteer starting to pay attention to um, how what he finds in the bottle varies by weather, um, other kind of factors. And uh, I talked about also the part I liked especially that uh, that the neighbors get interested, the neighbors' kids get interested. No one seems to complain about having a bug trap in the backyard, but people sort of get engaged and start talking about the invertebrates in, in the neighborhood. The process of collection is a neat science outreach project. And so I'll start with a question I might cut out because it's kind of bitter, but like, why can't we have this in Philadelphia? Maybe I'll say it in a nicer way. I'll say it like, <laughs> like, hey, what's involved with like like doing something even at a smaller scale in Philadelphia? I was thinking about this, and I'm like, man, any rec center in the city or any like... School in the city could have a could do some kind of bug sampling, whether it's a malaise trap or something else. And then, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. As, as, a, as a person who works in the bowels of a museum, studying <laughs> tiny flies under microscopes, like what's involved with that? Yeah, <laughs> I guess organization to do it is yeah. the first thing. Someone who wants to take initiative, I think it'd be really awesome to do here. I'd be interested in doing that here for sure. I yeah. guess I kind of. I'm taking a little chunk at that with the Swan Fountain project. And then there's also... It is very, you are right, yeah. Talk about, we've, we've alluded to it. We didn't talk... So, what is... Talk about the Swan Fountain. Okay. Yeah, quick. Yeah, sure. So, in the summers of 2013 and 2014, I went out every week throughout the summer. And there's this huge fountain that, in the center city of Philadelphia, where I would use a net and I'd sweep up all the insects that were falling in and drowning in that fountain. Then I bring them back to the academy as samples, and uh, I'm able to sort through what was found there throughout the summers and as the season changes from the spring to the summer to the fall. And I found like a pine barren cicada in there, and we found a species we didn't have in our collection in there of cuckoo wasp. Um, and there's a lot of other things that we haven't processed yet, but um, we're looking forward to seeing what's there. But it's really interesting to see. I didn't tell you this. Do you know the story of how the cuckoo wasps ended up here? No, do you know it? Well, I, looked, so I was Googling about that. And yeah. it was one of the, it was this really neat story that where cuckoo wasps in North America, the native ones were mostly in like the Southwest, I guess. Mm. Um, and then that, I forget this particular, do you remember the species? Not right? That's right. Well, the, the species that you had found occurs, it's an old world species. Mm. And someone had some, some, some history, they think, where it showed up sort of mid 20th century a little after World War II, and they think that it it rode over in, like, I don't know, the mud dauber, but some other species of mm-hmm. wasp that would have built nests on equipment returning from World War II, from North Africa campaigns and the European campaigns. Um, and so the cuckoo wasps are little wasps that, as the name implies, um, are uh, 
what do you call them, klepto brood parasites or something like that? Like they, yeah, they, lay their, they lay their eggs in the nests of other wasps and then their larvae hatch out, eat yeah. the stored dead bugs that the other wasps were the other wasp larvae we're going to use, and then eat the other wasp larvae. Yeah, so they're um, parasitic on other solitary wasps, ones that... So not not the wasps that many people think of that are nests, but ones that make um, their homes in the ground and soil, and yeah. sometimes um, in other yeah. locations. Yeah. And so it's like this interesting um, introduced exotic species, but one that apparently, apparently does well in urban settings, because yeah. we're still finding them in Philadelphia, like, decades... They established here and they're yeah. thriving. So, so yeah. yeah. I saw a new parasitoid wasp to me in Australia. What'd you see? <clears throat> it was a orange spider wasp. Oh, okay. And they, um, Pompility? I didn't, I don't remember the family, but that would make sense. But it, it uh, lays its eggs, well, it paralyzes huntsman spiders, which could be quite large. Yeah, they are. You know, if you saw one, you'd think it was a tarantula. Yeah. But they're not quite as big. Kind of leggier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they uh, um, drag, drag them back to their uh, to their burrow, and then they lay the eggs in them. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. Fresh food that way. Yeah, I, I, and I read, like, a book about bees recently, and was just even reading about, like, uh, and again, sort of, like, brood parasitic, or, like, kleptoparasitic bee species. And so there's, like, this whole... I mean, sort of get. I'm sure this is true at any level or any with any taxa, but it like sucks not to be human at least. Like we're big enough that we don't get we get parasitized, but it's like hmm. they don't like kill us and then emerge from our abdomens usually. And we've been able to use our brains to eliminate <laughs> yeah. a lot of our parasites. Right, right. If you're if you're like a caterpillar, there's yeah. a really solid chance you're going to die with something popping out of your belly later in life. Yeah. Um, or there is. a couple dozen things pop out. Of your belly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yep. it's, it's just uh, that's for sure. Anyway, it makes for fascinating natural history. I was yeah, talking about that the agony of being an animal that's not. A human or one of our domestic animals that we take care of. Yeah. Just like I, today, I was actually showing someone a picture of. Um, I came across a picture of no, an old PowerPoint, and I was showing people my field work in the Arctic, and I had a picture of a polar bear, and it's covered in flies, like huge, like oh. you know, like blood sucking flies, and wow. I was thinking about how like animals are just probably constant. Misery. Those caribou that lose a few pints of blood. Yeah, mosquitoes, yeah, so, yeah. And the moose. Yeah. And, then, and the moose, but that are have so many ticks on them. The winter ticks. You don't want to yeah. Google oh, that. Yeah. yeah, and then they <laughs> have uh, really, you know yeah. bot flies in their nose, nose bots, and and, and you know with the, the tongue parasites on the yeah. fish. Yeah, like the, the savagery of the natural world becomes really clear once you start looking at insects. Um, mm-hmm. Ken Frank and I were checking out. Uh, he, one of his. This is a local naturalist who wrote the Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia. Um, and it's very much a bug guy. And uh, he was showing me his favorite bridge spider population around some buildings around mm-hmm. the, the school kill. Wow. Um, cool. And so we're looking at those. And these are a, a synanthropic organism species of spider, <laughs> just by the name bridge spider. You can dig that. Um, and we're watching some of them. And then we see like some, a mud dauber wasp flying around, kind of casing the joint, looking at the, the webs and stuff. And... All of a sudden, like, it gets close to a, a web, and all of a sudden we see this spider drop down out of the, the web. Apparently, basically, the spider will an ocean down bailing. And, like, and then the wasp swoops and grabs it out of the, out of the air, basically. Uh, and so it was like a wasp, like, 
like hunting and then like swooping and catching a spider. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the things that I love about that, 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 like sort of paying more attention to entomology is that you see drama, mm-hmm. like that if you were, That's... you can, you can do this sometimes with birds. Like if you're seeing like Cooper's hawks or sharpshin hawks, like chasing down pigeons or. Yeah. Every once in a while I got a bumblebee hook and I'm looking at a, there's a Martin house, you know, <clears throat> yeah. and there's all these purple Martins flying around and a juvenile. You know, it was probably making one of his first flights, and bam, Cooper's Hawk grabs it. You know, you're like, oh, man. Like, you can see that kind of thing, but, yeah. like, you see it all the time, like, in your garden. That you sounds, yeah. that Madhava and the spider, it sounds like Planet two, planet Earth 2, all the action right there. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Or, like, I'm just in my backyard, and, like, I'm watching, like, a, a some native bee, like, digging a hole in the sand in between her pavers. Mm, yeah. You know, it's just, like, this kind of thing happens all the time. It's, like, once you focus your, yeah. yourself on that scale. There's, there's a colony of, of those sand bees right in um, Logan Square in Center City, Philadelphia. Every year they're there. So They're for right context, Logan Square is about as urban as you get in Philadelphia. Maybe the world. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's surrounded by like our monumental big like museums, mm-hmm. Academy being one of those, mm-hmm. um, by a major cathedral for Philadelphia. And, all, and skyscrapers. And skyscrapers. And it's right, right near City Hall. The heart of the very heart of the city. Well yeah. it's like right in the middle of this avenue that was meant to be replicate like one of the boulevards in Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they like didn't fill it up enough with museums, and so they filled up the rest with, you know, 50, 50 story or more skyscrapers. Yeah, big so. apartment buildings, mm-hmm. all that, and it's like, and so you can sort of see wild nature, like right in the yeah. middle of it. Yeah, the spot where the where the sand bees are, people walk around that circle all the time. But there's one spot among the cobblestones where there's sand in between it, and every year they come out, and you can see them what time flying you around. I think like mid midsummer. Yeah, because we, we yeah. always hope that they'll be there for the bug fest event at the Academy of Natural Sciences, <laughs> but by that time, they're all sealed up, they're done. So now we're going to switch to the other thing we're going to listen to, which is the other side of the continent. We've got um, a study of some of the longest urbanized territory in our country. I think Boston was settled in the what, early mid-1600s, um, and the harbor there has been seeing traffic ever since. We're going to hear from Jessica Rickens about the all taxa biodiversity inventory, which is continuing, but we're going to hear about sort of the initial stages and in general about the project. So here we go. My name is Jessica Rickin, and I currently actually work for myself. I'm an associate at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard University. Uh, I work with the National Park Service, but not for them, so I'm a consultant right now. So I was a postdoc at the MCZ, the Museum of Comparative Zoology, from 2005 to 2011, and during that time is when we started the All Taxa Biodiversity Inventory on the Boston Harbor Islands. I worked in the lab of Brian Farrell. He's a curator entomologist at the museum, and he was the principal investigator for the project. So the islands make up, it's a national park unit. It's called the Boston Harbor Islands National Recreation Area. And, you know, national parks have always had a mandate to uh, conserve their natural systems and wildlife to allow for visitor enjoyment now and into the future. And um, But most parks have traditionally known very little about 
most of their biodiversity, which is among the invertebrates. And so um, over the last 15 years or so, there's been sort of an increased movement to do this, what they're now calling biodiversity discovery, to learn more about invertebrate biodiversity. And that really started with a project in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park about 15 years ago, um, where the idea was to do this all-taxa biodiversity inventory to inventory everything within the park across all the different flora and fauna. And so the project in Boston Harbor Islands was kind of modeled after that effort. But, of course, it's in a very different kind of park. It's in an urban park, and it's an island park. It's made up of uh, 34 little islands and peninsulas right in Boston Harbor. So a very disturbed habitat with lots of cultural history, too. Um, but in a way, it makes it a more manageable project because the diversity is expected to be a lot lower than somewhere like Great Smoky Mountains. So there were kind of three goals with the project initially. One was kind of the science piece to catalog as many species as possible within this park, focusing on invertebrates like insects and some other arthropod groups and mollusks, um, and not only generate species lists but get an idea of how things were distributed across the islands because there's an interesting question about island biogeography there as well. But also because, because of where this park sits, we had a great opportunity to do a lot of outreach to uh, people surrounding the park um, and also to draw, it also was a big pool of people, students, citizen scientists to help us. And then, and then the third goal was to hopefully come up with some information that would be useful for park management too. And E.O. Wilson had a pretty instrumental role in starting this project. Um, he's at the MCZ. And so this was basically in his backyard, and he's obviously a great advocate for exploring biodiversity. And he coined this term, the micro-wilderness. Um, so that was kind of our motto, was exploring the micro-wilderness on the Boston Harbor Island. We found, maybe not surprisingly, more than we expected. And it's not often that people really take a close look at urban areas because they consider them to be disturbed and trashy and not worth much in terms of biodiversity. Now, the park has already done quite a bit of work uh, looking at things like plants and uh, coastal birds and uh, small mammals and things. So they have a good handle on on some of the groups like that. Um, but among, you know, the invertebrates, we, well, for instance, at the very beginning of the project, I asked E.O. Wilson how many species of ants he predicted we might find on the islands, and he guessed about 25. And in the end, we found uh, over twice that many, so 52 species, um, 170 species of wild bees. Um, like, for a lot of groups, I think the diversity was much higher than anybody expected. And we got a lot of um, taxonomists involved because certainly I couldn't identify all this stuff. So 
you know, it was a huge undertaking in terms of, you know, we collected over 150,000 specimens and had to process all that stuff. And um, we had close to 50 taxonomists from around the country and Europe helping us ID stuff. And often I would hear from these taxonomists that, you know, there were always some species that they were quite interested in or that were unexpected finds or that the overall diversity was higher than they had anticipated. So, And another component that, like somewhere like the Great Smoky Mountains, what they're doing is finding all these cool species new to science. And we didn't do that, but what we did find was a very high proportion of introduced species, exotic species. And several of those were species that had never before been seen in either the U.S. or North America. So those were kind of our new finds. Can you get a feel for which have arrived yesterday and which have arrived, like which came in on a ship in, I don't know, 1600 or something? Yeah, and in fact, I've kind of been exploring that question because I think for a lot of, a lot of the groups that we're finding, they're just, are way higher proportions. So say among the weevils, which are a group of beetles that are associated with plants, they're herbivorous, many of them are pests. 40% 40% of the species, of close to 100 species that we found are introduced. So we just have a lot of them. And, of course, yeah, because Boston is such an old port, it's been active, you know, for several hundred years. Certainly um, some of the species were arriving in the 1600s. And so, yeah, a lot of the early species that came over were things that were like ground dwelling that came over with ballast and ships. Um, so, like most of the millipedes we found on the islands are are introduced. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the ground beetles, and those are things that we can be pretty sure came over, um, you know, historically on ships. Um, and then as time has gone on, uh, there are different species that come, you know, there are more, most of the plants on the islands now, or about 40% of the species are non-native, so certainly there's insects coming over with plant and, you know, soil associated with that. Now we see more pests coming, or insects coming from Asia. Um, that are, you know, coming in refrigerated cargo ships and probably there's things, you know, the airport is right there in Boston Harbor too. So there's all kinds of ways for things to be transported there. You know, how long all that stuff has been there, you can kind of get an idea just by its natural history and ways that it might be transported. So the uh, you're looking at, at islands that are actual islands, like surrounded by water. Do you, yeah. Did you compare what you're seeing there with um, otherwise isolated patches of habitat or micro-wilderness like in Boston? Um, we haven't done that just because all our effort was put into this park. There's, um, And that kind of points to something. I mean, we wanted to know, like, our... You know, we found, so I said, 40% of our weevil species were introduced. Is that way higher than we'd expect, you know, just in mainland eastern Massachusetts, in and around Boston? But there's no comparative data sets for us to use because there's just very few of these sort of intensive inventories that go on anywhere. So 
um, we were able to do it for a bunch of groups of beetles. Uh, we compared it to Rhode Island, which seemed like a compar- you know, nearby mainland coastal area because Derek Sykes, an entomologist there, put together a great catalog of beetles of Rhode Island. But those kind of catalogs are, are very hard to come by. So it's, it's hard to compare with anything because there's just very few comparable data sets out there in urban areas, especially. Um, so, We've talked sort of in, in broad terms about biodiversity and the, and the, the, the animals you're looking at. Um, are there any particular species that, um, and this might just have to do with what tickles you, but like are there any particular species that you're fascinated to see or, or that struck you as particularly interesting when you found them? Yeah, of course. Um, one that got um, a little bit of notoriety with the park just because it, it was a cool story that they were able to use um, in a lot of their outreach stuff was a was a tiny little um, ground beetle. So ground beetles are a very diverse family, and most of them live on the ground. They're brown. They're you know they range in size, but this particular one is tiny. It's a couple millimeters, hard to see. And um, the history behind it is that. In the late 1800s, it was collected somewhere in Massachusetts. We don't know where. And um, somebody affiliated with Harvard described it had never been seen before, so it was described as a new species. And it was called Bambidian puritanum because it was found in Massachusetts. And there were a few specimens collected. They were deposited in the MCZ where I was working. and they've been sitting there for over a hundred years. And people, you know, if you find a new species, you want to find out all you can about its natural history and its distribution. So there were a lot of, there's a lot of people who study these beetles as a group and they wanted to find more so they could figure out more about it. Well, it was never seen again for, you know, people spent a lot of time looking for this and it kind of got this mythic status. And but it was never seen for you know decades. Almost a hundred years later, there were some ground beetle taxonomists at the MCZ studying a related species, and just out of curiosity, they went to go look at these specimens that were tucked away in a drawer somewhere. And they took a look at them, and they're like, "Hey, this isn't a species new to science. This, this was a species they recognized." from northern Europe. It lives on the beaches in England and northern in Scandinavia. And so they wrote up a little paper and they said, you know, that's why nobody's been able to find these beetles again, because actually they were not a new species, they were an introduced species. And probably a few came over on a ship and somebody happened to collect them, um, but then the population was too small to sustain itself, so it died out. Um, and so they, at the very end of their paper, they say, so that's the reason nobody has seen them again. It's possible that a population did persist, but unlikely. And if it did, it would probably be in a natural area that uh, was is near a port that was active, you know, in the early 19th century um, or late 1800s. 
and so sure enough, we found the those beetles, which is Bambidium nigropiceum, um, on the beach in the gravel uh, of it turned out to be several of the islands. And the taxonomist that who we were working with, Bob Davidson, he's actually at the Carnegie Museum in of Natural History in Pittsburgh. He had been on the lookout for this species his entire career. So <laughs> he was elated when he, because he was IDing the stuff for him. I happened to be there when he first saw it. And so that totally was a huge uh, coup for him. It was like his holy grail. So that was pretty exciting. And, and you know, the, the problem was that the beetle is two millimeters long and brown and pretty boring to look at. But had quite a history, and so so that in that case, then we rediscovered, and it's we don't know for sure if the beetles we found are descendants from that original population or if they've been reintroduced in the meantime. But you know, it was kind of a cool discovery, nonetheless. It's a cool. It's cool also just having that kind of prediction and then being able to to test it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're very hard to see. You know, they're tiny and they live in the gravel on the shore, so. Not surprising nobody had found them. Well, I have become more and more interested in pollinators. So um, bees were something we got quite interested in early on. Um, <clears throat> there's a guy, Sam Drogi, who works with USGS down in Patuxent, and he he was very helpful in helping us identify things and telling me how to sample for bees. And so we did a fairly intensive sampling effort for native bees and then actually the last year of the project we set up a bee monitoring project that the park can continue to use in subsequent years and so I didn't know a whole lot about bees when I started this project but it's kind of become what I work with now with other national parks um, but you know, it's pretty amazing. When you talk to people about bees, they think honeybees and maybe a bumblebee. They know what a bumblebee looks like. But, you know, we documented more than 170 species of native wild bees on, you know, nine islands. So that still astounds me. Um, and the diversity among, you know, among those species is amazing. Um, you know, the <clears throat> the different nesting habitats and lifestyles, and there's just a huge diversity in the native bees that most people know very little about, um, but certainly something to find out more about and tell people about and be concerned about with all the, what we know now about bees in peril. And So for the outreach, we kind of had Two two ways we went about it. The, the first thing we did was we had a very nice setup at uh, the MCZ to do really uh, high-resolution um, photos of the different species. So uh, right from the outset, we started taking um, great photos of all the species we were collecting. And... Um, it's very true. It's hard to get people excited about invertebrates. And I think one of the main reasons is simply just because they're small and they're hard to see and it's hard to get excited about things that you can't see very well. And so the photos, I think, were really helpful in bringing things up to a scale where people could really appreciate, you know, what a millipede looks like, how 
terrifying an ant can look or, you know, how cool, you know, a weevil can. So anyway, we started making posters. We ended up making um, field guides. Um, we made, we had a website where anybody could look at images of the insects we were collecting. Um, and so we used, we had a bunch of sort of printed media that we had and we also um, <clears throat> used, so we also worked very closely with the interpretive and education staff at the park and they already have been uh, working with the public schools in the Boston area for quite a while. I mean, the park was established in 1996. It's not a very old park, but they they go into the schools in Boston and do all kinds of programs about the park. And so we help them design sort of an insect-focused unit. So they did that in the classroom, and they also took kids out to the park to collect stuff for us. Um, and that would all be deposited with us at the end. So we had a lot of um, student involvement. Of course, we also had a lot of college students helping us and all kinds of volunteers and interns. So I guess that was the other way we got uh, sort of an outreach tool was to get people involved in actually helping us with the project. So we had more than 50 students, volunteers, citizen scientists, helping us both collect and also, more importantly, in the lab itself, helping us process specimens. So, um, yeah, a lot of my time was just coordinating volunteers and students and other folks and then working with the park so that they could go work with, you know, K-12, the K-12 population. Okay, so we're back, and we all we're just sitting here trying to <laughs> track down pictures of Bambidian nigropisam, which is the new name for the the formerly named Puritana Puritanum, I guess Puritanum, um, which was the rediscovered little itty bitty ground beetle. I mean, they're kind of pretty in their way, I guess at the two millimeter scale. That's tiny. Mm-hmm. So I guess if I I was looking at ground beetles. These are little beetles that like to eat slugs and worms and stuff. Yeah, they're little predatory beetles. Yeah. Um, Dander Ann's group, your previous guest. That's his group of, of beetles. That he yeah, likes, yeah, yeah. So. so tiger beetles are ground beetles? Mm-hmm. Okay. Great yeah. They used to be their own family, but then they were put within ground beetles. Okay. So. The tiger beetles I know well because if you're, I mean, especially the pine barrens, but other places you might be hiking... And you see these little bright green beetles that like are always like one step ahead of you being able to take a look at them. Mm-hmm. Like those are tiger beetles. <laughs> one of the things I liked about, and it's also sort of involved with the Los Angeles one. I think maybe a little more in the Boston Harbor Islands one, but like the involvement of kids in the urban entomological research project. What kind of experiences do you guys have with getting kids involved in in, in bugs? Well, actually, for me, it was one of my most successful programs. So I get a lot of rec centers coming. I, mean, I work for Philadelphia Parks and Recreation. I'm in the park. You're wearing a Parks and Recreation t-shirt right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, it came right from work. So, so we get um, rec centers will take a bus and come to the environmental center um, 
in this massive park. So I'm sure if you're a regular listener, you know that I work in a big, in a huge park, a 1,900-acre park. What's it called? The Wissahickon. So people come to my park, and I put out what I call like a a natural history buffet. Because I don't necessarily know what these kids will want to do. So not come from schools, right? I mean, when they come from schools, they they come with an agenda, and we have a whole program set up for them. When they come from rec centers, generally the kids, they don't really know what they want to do. The rec leader doesn't have an idea of what program. When they're a rec leader, they're not a science teacher. Right, they just want to kind of take them out. Yeah. So you can't really, like, force the kids to do a program that they're not into. So what I do is I, like, introduce myself, and I take them up on the the porch of the environmental center, and I have a bunch of things out that they could use. And, you know, binoculars. They often want to use binoculars. Uh, but in the dead of summer, um, the birds get kind of slow. There's not much to see. Um, you know, they're they're feeding young. They're being kind of quiet. But I'll leave out a bunch of f- insect field guides and a bunch of sweep nets. And the kids will always want to use that. And then we have those magnifying glass boxes. And mm-hmm. so that's so that seems to be what they want to do the most is catch catch insects. There you go. And it's yeah. it's awesome. And also we have um, two box turtles, so I get them to catch slugs and worms for them. <laughs> Um, which and then <laughs> so we'll flip rocks, get slugs and worms for the box turtle, and then um, yeah, go out and use sweep nets to catch insects, and it's awesome. And I I found you know they've brought me back a bunch of cool stuff that like you know <laughs> like a, a handsome trig Ooh. or a, um, the first um, netwing beetle I ever saw they, a kid brought me you know and things mm. like that. It's just really cool. You never know. What, some kid brought me some um, I forget which one. Uh, it was a really cool looking ground beetle larvae. I forget which species it was, but they just bring back really cool stuff. What's a handsome trig? It's a uh, um, tree, like a. It's a cricket. Yeah. <laughs> With these really awesome palps that are just very unique and handsome. And a palp yeah. is a mouth part. Yeah, it's a okay. it's a mouth part appendage. Yeah, okay, palps. so it's got a cool looking face. Yeah. Okay. We'll, and they're kind we'll of like drum a picture up of that mm-hmm. included in, the, in social media. Yeah, it's hard episode. to describe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what I do right now. Tends to be pretty informal. Um, I've recently, more recently, I've, I did a presentation on bugs for a girl, a brownie scouts troop, so they can get their bug badge. And then, yeah, I like to do sort of scavenger hunts with kids too, where I'm like, you have to go find the biggest bug, the smallest bug, the bug with the longest antenna, the bug with the longest ovipositor, and then one of each color with a rainbow. You know, just <laughs> kind of make it fun. The fuzziest bug, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's always really cool and exciting to see what they come back with and it's exciting for the kids too because there's you can find beautiful bugs out there you can find dangerous bugs out there um, it kind of covers all the different elements what's a dangerous so, bug? one that could bite actually um, some brown beetles could be dangerous tiger beetles dangerous bite, or they give you a pinch Think okay, they give you a pinch. Yeah, All right, with, okay. with, the, with the kids like you don't have to worry about that necessarily because the ones that they'll find usually are not that dangerous or you give them a net yeah. and they catch that and it's okay yeah. it's with guidance alright <laughs> when you're coming from the reptile and amphibian world and you're worried oh, about catching something yeah. dangerous it's like a different kind of right 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 yeah <laughs> yeah there's in, in, in our areas here yeah that's, there's more that's dangerous there but with bugs it's yeah like a pinch or yeah yeah 
They're not going to go catch a bee because they know not to do that. I tell them not to catch bees and they always do. <laughs> that's, that's the danger factor I'm talking about. They know that's it's dangerous, dangerous okay. and Wasp would be scary dangerous. and they know yeah. that there's a risk. So they're like, look how brave I am. And so there's that's an element of fun. Well, see, it's not so much brave to catch them, it's to brave to release them from the net. <laughs> yeah, that's this is my job. <laughs> Um, and so, like, what are talk just really quickly about about uh, insect migration? The people might not just just oh, yeah. think about monarchs, and that's it. Yeah. So you think about monarchs; um, they're a textbook example of migration. But there are many other insects that migrate too, like dragonflies. Um, some of the larger dra- dragonflies migrate up similar routes as monarch butterflies, um, and there are other butterflies that also migrate. And recently, maybe you guys saw there was an article that came out in Popular Science about they were collecting insects in the air, high up in the air, and found all these other insects that migrate too. This was over in Europe. So I'm curious to see if that was done here, what would be found as well. And I'm also curious to know if some of, well, I wonder if, I mean, probably not, I think migration doesn't happen very much on the West Coast, but maybe if there is any of that, that tall skyscraper building that the bioscan is collecting with, maybe that would get something. Well, but this is an interesting question. So this is a fun question. Like, how could you test migration? Because we got some tall buildings in Philly, and we're on the Atlantic Flyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so does New York. But like, you can you can throw if you're up on I don't know the Comcast Tower or something like that. Yeah. And you had like a malaise trap up there, or whatever kinds of traps you want at migration, and just see what insects end up in them in like. In, in the fall and spring. And maybe you could add traps too in New York as well at other places along the way to see if it, then what you find in there matches over the season and over yeah. the travel, uh, estimated travel times of the right. specimens you collect. Yeah, you have to have I'm a fine grad school. That's an easy study to do. I mean, it's like, it's. it's It'd be to, big, literally, because you're high up. You well, no, thank you. No. It's big, but it's like. It's like, it isn't like you got to come up with a budget to travel to the Andes or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, I would like to take an elevator to the top of this building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Better contact the um, people building that new building now. Get something installed <laughs> in the infrastructure of the tallest oh, building in Philly. In. Oh, yeah. All right. Think big. Here we go. You'd yeah. have to have them maybe at the ground as well. And then, you know. You'd probably find different things at different levels, different oh, heights. I totally do this. Uh, you can always get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at urbwildlifecast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook pretty easily. Um, you can always get in touch with us. If you want to record something and, and ask us about it, maybe put it on the podcast, we're totally up for that. You know, we do these sort of formally taped versions, but the one before this episode was a longer just in, uh, interview conversation Tony had with somebody, and then we were able to do an intro conclusion on it and pop it on, on the website, and so it's Pretty easy to do that kind of thing. So if you got ideas, let us know. If you like the podcast, please rate us highly on your podcast app of choice or platform of choice and tell everybody you know about the podcast. We want more people to find it and listen to it um, so that they can hopefully get turned on to urban nature too. And in this case, to get turned on to, to invertebrate biodiversity in the micro-wilderness. Woo. Indeed. Indeed. So um, Indeed. if people want to check out your Periscope stuff... You can find me on social media at... Isa Beta Bug. It's my handle for 
all my platforms from Instagram, Twitter, and Periscope. So thanks again for listening, and, and thanks to thanks Isa for inviting for, me to join you guys. Thank you for joining us. All right, it's and we, been fun. I'm sure we'll hear yeah, from thanks you. Thanks so more. much. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure we have you on again. <laughs>